Uh, maybe in a hubbub of praise, if there's something you just want to say thank you to God for, let's have a minute of just saying that all together out loud. Just, just say thank you to God uh, for things he's done in your life. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you that you reach into our lives and to affect us. Thank you to us, family, friends, people around us, to love us, to care for us. And we thank you for Cordelia. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are a God who loves to bless. We recognize that sometimes your blessings are mysterious to us, severe and difficult to understand, and yet we trust in your character that you are good, sovereign, loving, and wise. We thank you for the great gift that you speak to us through your word, and we pray your word would do your work by your spirit as we seek to understand it this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please do uh, take a seat. Uh, and get banned as well. Please do take a seat. If you've got a Bible there, uh, it would be fantastic if you could find what's called 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. This is on page 1219. Page 1219. I apologise. I think we've run out of Bibles in church again this morning. Uh, we'll get some more again for um, next week. Um, the Bible elf keeps whisking them away somewhere, I think. I'm not sure. So I apologise for that. It's page 1219. Uh, it's 1 Peter chapter 3. You can find it on your phone. If you're not sure why for access, that's on the back of uh, the new sheet we've got this morning. You can find it on your phone. 1 Peter chapter 3, sentences 13 to 17. Uh, this is what it says. Let me read it to you first. What is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats or, or do not fear what they are frightened of, is another way to translate that. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, everyone, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, it may not be obvious in the, the Bible that you're reading, but what I've just read there is a unit of thought. It's a paragraph of thought that Peter writes. We just work through letters, parts of the Bible. This is where we've arrived this morning. And this is the unit. And if you've got um, sharp eyes, did you notice two very similar phrases, right at the beginning and right at the end? Right at the beginning, uh, a bit into sentence 14, suffer for what is right. And then midway through sentence 17, suffer for doing good. Do you see that there, bookending this little thing? The question I want to ask this morning, and it doesn't actually matter whether you label yourself a Christian or not, I'm not a huge fan of labels, so should we just ditch that label for a moment, let's just be human beings together. Um, the question I want to ask, really out of that, is how do we keep doing the right thing, did you notice that, suffer for what is right, how do we keep doing the right thing, or how do we keep doing good things, sentence 17, suffer for doing good, when we know that that will bring trouble and strife our way. Have you ever been in that situation? When you know what the right thing is to do, but you know that if you do that right thing, it's going to cause all sorts of hoo-ha in your own life, all sorts of battering and bruising in your own life. Or 
there's a good thing you want to do, good thing you have done, and yet that good seems to get repaid back to you uh, in a very different format. No good deed goes unpunished. Have you heard that phrase before? Well, we use it as a kind of truism, don't we? Because sometimes it is true. Now, you don't need to be a Christian, you don't need to be a spiritual person at all to realise that kind of reality. So how do we keep being the kind of people we want to be? How do we keep doing the right thing? How do we keep doing good things in the face of going, oh, really? Do I want to stick my head above the parapet again? Now, leading up to this paragraph, uh, Peter's played around with three different arenas of life. So let me put it into the arenas of life that he's in and see if they resonate with you. The first arena of life that Peter talked about all the way back at chapter 2, sentence 30, was the arena of, of the state. There are times when we want to do the right thing, but the state, the government, local, national, regional, kind of makes it very difficult to do the right thing or to do the good thing. So many of us are prayerfully tracking with House of Bread, who are handling a very, very tricky situation exceptionally well, where House of Bread, working with the homeless in the Brunnaby House, have been issued with a warning that they're going to have a community protection order placed upon them because they're giving out tents to folk who are homeless. Now, I think many of us, it's very complicated, it's very, very complicated. And the partnership between House of Bread and the various agencies is excellent. It's fantastic as the agencies try and work alongside with House of Bread, reaching out to the vulnerable. But many of us would say giving a tent to a homeless person is the right thing to do, wouldn't we? And yet sometimes the right thing to do causes difficulties, complexities and hardship. Well, what do we do then? The second arena that Peter played around with, that picks up in chapter 2, sentence 18, that second arena is the workplace. He doesn't turn a blind eye to reality that sometimes in the workplaces our bosses, our line managers, can be a little bit harsh on us and unfair. Well, how do we do the right thing, the good thing, in the context of the workplace? Let me give you two scenarios which were live this week. Uh, both these people have said it's fine that I share these this morning. You won't be able to recognise either person because they're not part of our church, actually, anyway. But I have permission to talk about these two workplace scenarios. Doing the right thing brings trouble. How do you do the right thing as a good thing? The first is a young lad, he's early 20s, and he moved work teams. He works construction. He moved to a different works team. Six of them crammed into one of those double cab transits going down the motorway to do jobs. And when it's a certain distance away, as a team, they get a meal allowance. They can spend up to £10 for lunch, up to £15 for dinner. They put it on their own cards and then you submit your expenses and get pay paid back. Standard. Quite a nice lunch, I would say. Uh, this young lad is a junior on the team of six. They pull up at a service station and uh, if they line up, he's about fifth in the line out of the six guys, and he watches as all the guys in front of him on his work team, new work team, all senior guys, they order something that is pretty close to that £10 mark, 9.98 or whatever. Order it, immediately cancel the order and buy a sandwich for two quid. Why? Because they have the 9.98 receipt now, they can claim back seven quid in their pocket, bargain. You see, he watches this happen. Dinner time, they sit down at the travel lodge where they're all staying, the little, um, you know, they always have a pub next door, don't they? All they go in, exactly the same thing. All five on the team, exactly the same thing. Order something pretty close to 15 quid, immediately cancel it, order something a lot cheaper. Now they can pocket the difference when they reclaim. They have the receipt for 15 pounds. Clever little scheme, isn't it? If you're on the road three, four days a week, 
four weeks a month, 52 weeks a year, that starts to add up. I can see some of you doing the math. Stop it right now. <laughs> now, some of us might say, well, hang on a minute. They are entitled to that money. I don't know whether you actually think what's right there. I'm not making an assumption there. This guy rang me. He's not part of our church. He said, Alex, what, what should I do? What should I do? He's 22 years old, junior on the team. And of course, if he starts to do something different or grasses them up the line, what's going to happen to him? Some of you work construction. I should imagine it's a place where points are made quite clearly. People can express their opinions well. Yes? How do you do the right thing when there's a risk of it coming back on you? Suffer for doing good. Suffer for doing what is right. How do we keep going? Does that make sense? Let me just give you another workplace scenario. Again, nowhere near Stafford. Uh, a teacher, a senior, part of the senior leadership team of a medium-sized high school, rang me because she and her head teacher had had a discussion where they felt it was right to engage various agencies into the life of a family that had three children in the school because of various evidences that they'd seen in the children's behaviour, way away from Stafford. Okay? But it could be a school in Stafford easily. And her and the head teacher left a meeting knowing that they should do that, but both saying, let's pick it up tomorrow. And she rang and said, because Alex, we know, we know that that family know where we live. And we know this will cause real problems for us as people. How do you do what is right? How do you do what is good when there is a risk to suffering? And then the last arena that Peter talks about, chapter 3, sentence 1, wives, chapter 3, sentence 7, husbands, the two most listened to sermons of the year so far, even though they're two weeks ago, they're online if you want to, uh, uh, if you want to listen. Uh, if you listen to the one on husbands, just turn the volume down a little bit at the beginning. Uh, he talks about marriage and family. How do you do what is right in your family, in your marriage? How do you do good when you know that actually it's going to come back on you, it's going to cause hassle and issue? So now I'm thinking of another scenario, again, a, a story someone said that they were happy for me to share, a story that none of you would recognise who it was, of course, but where a, a couple felt they had to intervene in a dispute in the extended family. But they knew by doing that that the messages on Facebook and the social media hashtags and the phone calls they get from various cousins and stuff would be pretty unpleasant because of that necessary intervention. How do you do what is right? How do you do good when it's going to lead to suffering in your own life? That's what this paragraph is about. It's so relevant, isn't it? There you go. Sentence 14, suffer for what is right. Sentence 17, suffer for doing good. Well, what Peter gives us is two concrete markers, two concrete markers to navigate those moments. Stand and speak. Stand and speak. And I want you to take them into your own life, wherever you are spiritually, and think about the difference they could make, about being the kind of person I suspect we all long to be, which is the kind of person with the courage to do good and do what is right, whatever the outcome of that is. So first, stand. Stand for Jesus, don't bow to fear. Let me read sentence 13, 14 and 15 again. Stand for Jesus, don't bow to fear. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Well, lots of people. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. 
Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. So there's a risk here of fear. Do you see it says, do not fear their threats? Now, in your Bible, you might have a little footnote, and I think the alternative translation is actually better. It says, do not fear what they fear. I, what do people fear in the world which stops us doing the right thing? What frightens us? I don't want to do that because I'm frightened of this. What is it that we naturally fear? And, and Peter writes and says, do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what is fearful. So what do you fear? Think about your workplace, your family, your marriage, or the state. Think about a scenario that Peter has talked about. Think about where your mind went when I was telling those real life stories. What is it that you fear in that moment that stops you doing the right thing? It's things like fearing losing family, losing friends, fearing losing your career options, losing your job, fearing losing the money that you need to make ends meet, fearing losing a relationship and being alone, fear of losing your health, losing your freedom or losing money that you could rightfully get as yours. That's the kind of things we fear, isn't it? Peter says the great risk is we fear these things and it stops us doing the right thing. So what is the remedy? What is the remedy to that? There's that little sentence. It's a beautiful sentence. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So if you're not yet a Christian, I'm urging you to discover by revering Christ, fearing Christ above those things, is the greatest way to be the kind of person we want to be. The person who does right and does good. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now let us pull it into a lay-by for a moment and give you a brain break with a couple of illustrations. Can we do that? So just come back if you've sort of drifted off for a moment. That word heart, did you see it there? Revere in your hearts Christ as Lord. Now when we hear that word heart, we normally, most of us, if we're kind of British culture, which isn't all of us, most of us think of our emotions, don't we? We think, we think it's talking about how I feel, I must feel Jesus as Lord. Well that's not, that's not how Peter meant it at all. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine for a moment, some of you have been there, maybe you're in a plush restaurant, uh, maybe you're walking across a park. I remember seeing it when I walked across a park once. Perhaps you've seen it on TV. Perhaps actually you can get that feeling of nerves in your belly, something you did it not so long ago actually, nerves in your belly about this. I remember walking across this park and ac across the park there was a bench, it was a lovely kind of bright autumn day, beautiful park. Across was this bench, a young couple sitting on the bench and then a chap stood up. Boy and a girl, man and a woman, the chaps stood up, just watching. And then he turned to the girl and he went down with one knee. Now I know what's happening. Oh, it's so beautiful. I was on my own, so I could kind of. Yeah. <laughs> now I couldn't hear what he was properly saying, but I could see his mouth really clearly, and I kind of swerved slightly on my path to head towards him in a kind of pretending to watch, because it's kind of it's a lovely thing, isn't it? He's proposing. Some of you blokes are looking blank. Come on. <laughs> okay? He's proposing. And as I, got, as I got closer and could kind of pick up on the wind what he was saying, I could see the black velvety box, I could see the little glimmering gleam. It must have been a rock the size of a moon because it was like glinting all over the place. He's there like this. He's down on one knee and I heard him say, I give you my heart. Now what did I, what did I think? What, really? what, did I, what, did I, what did I think he was going to do? Did I think he was going to ram his hand through his sternum and tear out this lump of pulsating muscle and say, I give you my heart. No, I, of course I knew he wasn't talking physically, didn't I? Of course I did. I hope he wasn't right. Did I think he just meant his emotions? No. 
He's using it to mean, I give you everything. I give you it all. That's what Peter means here. When he says, revere Christ as Lord in your heart, he's not talking just about some emotional response. Some of us are more emotional than others, aren't we? We fall into this trap that if we're someone who does this in church, we're more engaged with Jesus because the heart is engaged. What a fallacy that is. That's just personality. I don't care if you're like this. Soldier on parade. How great is our God. I don't care. I don't care if you're jigging along the front doing whatever the can or something. Yeah? I won't be with you. But I don't mind you doing that. That's personality. When the Bible says hearts, it means everything you are. Jesus says, doesn't he, Mark chapter 12, 30, 30, 31, something like that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your strength. Everything that you are, Jesus is Lord. Give it all, give it all. What he's sort of saying here is the remedy to this fear, this, this remedy that when suffering might come our way, we don't do the right thing, we don't do the good thing, we don't engage social services to protect the child that needs protection because we're worried about the brick through our window. We don't step in and intervene between an ext- two extended family members to try and reconcile because we're worried about what others might say in the immediate short term. We don't stand up to an inappropriate practice in the workplace because we just can't be bothered with the hassle. The solution to that risk is to see Jesus as Lord in every aspect of who we are. It's having him as our only audience. I illustrate it like this as well, because some of us love stories, don't we? We love our truth in stories. So here's one. And I've told this one before, so some of you know it, because it's a fame. I used to play rugby. I clearly wasn't uh, in the pack. Far too pretty for that. (coughs) Lightningly quick, shimmying salsa hips. That was me. There I was. It's true. (laughs) Right. um, And uh, when I was late, you can stop laughing, okay. When I was a late teenager, when I was a late teenager, that was probably like the peak, a very low peak, a very low altitude peak in my rugby league. I guess I was 16, 17 years old. And I was in a set of trial matches to go forward to an England level team, a junior England level team. And I was really nervous. I've been honest, I knew in, I knew in my heart of hearts I'd only scrape through. You know, I, I, wasn't a, I hadn't got through in a solid way. I, I kind of scraped, scraped through. And I knew that, and I was nervous as. And I remember walking out onto this huge um, set of playing fields, probably six or eight rugby pitches, all set out, for what would be an entire afternoon of mixing up teams, playing people in different positions, and, and there'd be a lot. There was a lot of people there watching. There were some people, some real rugby geeks who were just hoping to spot the next Johnny Wilkinson or, or the like. He was actually in that that same. Try actually, um, but to spot the next great player, uh, you know, and they're there to be there at the right to start of their career. There was various of our own coaches who had obviously come to support the players that they managed to get through to this place. There was lots of parents, grandparents, a couple of Labradors randomly. There was, there was like all sorts of people here, and then there was all the selectors in bright yellow bibs with clipboards, looking very stern and serious, and scribbling notes all over the place. All these voices, all these eyes on me, all this fear of performance in my belly as I I, I ran on to to play, and I didn't start well. About half an hour in, I saw this figure coming down the slope. The car park was on a little slope, coming down the slope. I'll be honest, he looked like a goon. Um, Big green wellies, oversized Mac inherited from his father, and he'd spent three months working in Russia and had brought back one of those massive Russian woolly hats with the flaps and he was wearing it. It was my dad. 
Okay? And I saw him coming. He made it. Changed appointments, changed work commitments. He made it. My heart. Shoulders went back. My head went up. Take on the world. And the only person for the next two hours, that everyone else faded into nothing, the only person I could see was my dad. Not because I wanted to make my dad love me, but because I knew my dad loved me. And whatever happened over that afternoon, whatever happened, every tackle missed, every pass stumbled, every kick way off target, I'd walk off that pitch and my dad would put his arms around my shoulder and say, I love you, son. And so I gave it my all. He still didn't get through. But <laughs> that's what Peter is saying here. The risk is when there is suffering for doing what is right, when there is suffering for doing what is good, when parenting is hard because of what people are saying to Steve and Kate about their way of doing it, when the workplace is difficult, when doing the right thing will cause you pain, the remedy is set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts, with all that you are, see him as Lord. The audience of one and play to him. And that is literally what I said to that 21, 22-year-old construction worker on the phone. As he rang me, I think from the toilets by the background sounds from the service station, saying, what should I do? I said, play to an audience of one. Play to an audience of one. And so to an extent, sometimes I'm hesitant about those wristbands. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Sometimes I'm a bit hesitant, because I think, well, Jesus would just do a miracle. So sometimes I'm a little bit, you know, hesitant. But sometimes I think, oh, yes, 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 yes. What would Jesus do? And I'll do what he, he would do. I'll just do what he would do. And it's not, it doesn't make it easy, does it? It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't suddenly stop the suffering. It doesn't stop that teacher having a brick potentially through her window. It doesn't. It doesn't stop that construction worker's colleagues, I know, cementing his feet into the M6. I don't know what they do. It doesn't stop any of that. But it does mean a day arrives when Jesus will look you in the eye. You were saved by grace. You were saved because of what I did. It didn't require anything from you. Come on in, you're welcome in heaven. But we're there by grace. But then he'll reach out that arm and he'll go, do you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come here. Come here. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You play to the audience of one. So there's the first of the two concrete markers that Peter puts down. Stand for Jesus. And how I love Steve's choice of Ephesians 6 for Cordelia, the lion-hearted. The lion-hearted. Is that right? Lion-hearted Cordelia. Ephesians 6. Stand. I say again, stand. Finally, I say stand three times in Ephesians 6. Stand, stand, stand for Jesus. Don't bow to fear. So last question before we move on to the second point. There's only two points this morning, so we're halfway there. This is the longer of the two, I think. Right. Last question I just want to ask. Where is your life shaped by fear? Where is your life actually shaped by fear? Fear of losing your income. Fear of losing that relationship. Fear of being yelled at. 
Fear of what your friends might say. Fear of the money you would lose. The truth will set you free, says Jesus. Not least from living a life built by fear. If there's fear in your marriage, I would like you to come and talk to me so I can help with that because that's utterly inappropriate. And if you're the perpetrator or receiver of fear in your marriage, we need to deal with that immediately, immediately. But where is your life shaped by fear? Are there work, <coughs> work relationships shaped by fear? A harsh line manager? Church relationships shaped by fear? It's very, very possible. What, what's the corrective now you need to do? What's your action point? Right, let's have a look at the second one then. So the first remedy is stand for Jesus. You can do what is right and you can do good, even when it brings about difficulty in your life, because you're standing for Jesus, revering him with your heart, with everything, in all situations, audience of one. The second is speak. Stand and speak. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Speak for Jesus. Don't be silenced by uncertainty. So let me pick it up uh, just after the beginning of sentence 15. If you've got a Bible there, it would be great to see it. From where it says always, sentence 15, picking up from where it says always. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. For those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So there's lots of words that we could transpose into relationships, can't we? People are going to speak slanderous about us or maliciously about us or negatively about us. And he says the second solution, first you stand, revere only Jesus, but then you speak. You seek to reveal Jesus. Words matter. Words matter. Do you know, when I took my GCSEs, I recorded all my revision notes onto a cassette tape. Now, that massively dates me, doesn't it? A cassette tape. I'm not that old. I was just, I was just a slow adopter. Right. Cassette tape. And then I played the cassette tape under my pillow at night, hoping that my revision notes would mysteriously kind of get absorbed into my pores and become intrinsic to who I was. I could, I could sit in an exam and just regurgitate them because of osmosis. Have you ever done that? I don't advise it at all. I, I, not at all. It doesn't work. Sometimes we think Christianity is caught like that. We think it's caught by osmosis. We bob alongside people. We, we live as best as possibly can. People say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, they're a good person. And, and somehow, mysteriously, like an unpleasant infection, it will rub off on other people and, and suddenly they're a Christian. They've caught it. Actually, actually, repeatedly in the Bible, we're told Christianity is not caught, it is taught. Taught. It re requires words to be, to be spoken and, and transmitted. Now, I think when we're un under pressure, so now I am more talking to Christians, those of us who aren't yet Christians, it's a window to look into Christian life. I think when we're under pressure, when we think by what we might say, it might bring a bit of, bit of suffering or unpleasantness in our way, we default to, to four possible responses, four equally unhealthy, unhealthy errors which are corrected by this passage. Error number one, we're silent, we don't say anything at all. Error number two, we're shallow. What we do say is just not very deep, sophisticated or thought through. Error number three is we're strident. We have a good thing to say, but the way we say it is really rather horrid. And, and unpleasant to hear. Does that make sense? Like a two-year-old screaming the place down. Strident. And, and, and error number four is that we're a bit <coughs> sly, uh, a bit cunning. We kind of uh, change what we're saying to be a bit more receivable. Does that make sense? Do you see yourself there? Silent, shallow, strident, or sly. And I think each of these is corrected here. 
So when it comes to being silent, he says, always be prepared to give an answer. So there's something about a responsibility for those of us who want to talk about Jesus in preparing ourselves well to talk about Jesus. And my biggest help there, my easiest help there, is when I speak at the front, and I suspect this is true for anyone who speaks from the front as a talk like this, we are not, we are not throwing a javelin. We're passing a baton. What I mean by that is, is my goal is not simply to hurl a truth and pin it into your heart like a javelin. My goal is to give you a truth that you can pass on to other people. Does that make sense? It's a relay baton. So I'd urge you, in terms of being prepared, so you don't have to be silent when someone asks you a question, actually listen to talks, not just for yourself, what is God pinning into my life, but listen for the people around you. What is here that I can pass on to others? Does that make sense? You're a bit prepared. And believe in God's providence that what we happen to be saying at the front will be necessary for you to pass on in the week. Does that make sense? God works like that, wonderfully well. The solution to being shallow, and sometimes Christians' Christians' responses are a bit pat, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There's no shallowness in that phrase, the reason for the hope that you have. Hope is one of the richest, deepest and biggest words there is in the Bible. There is nothing shallow about it. We're going to talk about that a bit more next week and the week after. Put some depth into our responses. The solution to strident. You know what I mean by strident? Do you know what I mean by strident? I sometimes hear myself being strident. You know, it comes across as an irritant and a roughshod and you know, just not very pleasant and, and difficult to hear. Now, some of us have personalities that are like that. I have a slightly more... Uh, 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 the word in my head is confrontational but I don't think that's the word I quite want but a, a slightly more front foot approach that's my, that's my personality when I first became a Christian I used to walk up to people just on the university campus where I became a Christian I'd walk up to people and I'd say excuse me, excuse me and they'd stop and look around because I was going to say what time is it and I'd say do you know Jesus is your king? Oh, right. <laughs> I, I, I've slightly outgrown that now Sadly, maybe sadly, maybe sadly. But that's what, did you see what I mean? A stridency, uh, you know, it just, even what you're saying might be good, but people can't hear it because of how you say it. Well, the solution here, he says, but do this, the reason for your hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That word gentleness means um, humility, no arrogance, no arrogance. How can we possibly be arrogant? How can we possibly be arrogant? Jesus has reached into our life when we were nothing. He's reached into our life when we were nothing. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us, Romans 5 verse 9. While we were his enemies, raging war against God, Jesus the Son comes and says, kill me so you can come into God's family. I, I the true son of God will die so you the sons and daughters can come in and be part of the family. I will leave so there's space for you to come. How can we be arrogant? stops the strivers, doesn't it? Humility, gentleness, respect. And then the solution to slyness, that slight twisting of the truth so that people can receive it a bit, bit more. It's like taking away the Brussels sprouts uh, on Christmas Day, isn't it? I'll just take the nasty bits away so you can actually digest it and eat it. Now that might be a nice thing to do. How did you do that to me? 
Yeah, but it's that kind of approach with the truth. God, God lays this meal before us. We have to trust that all of it is necessary for healthiness. And then we come along and say, well, they won't like that, so let's just push that one out of the way. Let's just take that off the plate and just leave the good stuff. That's being sly, isn't it? The correction to that, he says, um, is that, verse 16, you'll keep a clear conscience. It means when no one else is looking, when the light is off, when you're laying in bed just about to go to sleep, and you look deep in your conscience, you can say, I did the right thing. I did it right. So there we have it. We'll come into land. Kids will come back in. We'll dedicate the beautiful Cordelia and the beautiful Kate. Slightly rough around the edges, Steve. I noticed you shaved today, actually. I didn't notice. I was tempted to. Um, uh, let, let's bring it into land. Because this, the Bible... The Bible is a real life book. Sunday sermons are mostly about Monday mornings. So which arena? State? Government? I want to do the right thing, but it's going to come back on me. Workplace? Family, marriage? Where is it that your life is shaped by fear? Lose money? I'll be alone, break a relationship. Jesus wonderfully through Peter says, I can make you a woman who does right and does good, whatever the consequences to you. I can make you a man, a boy. By saying, I'm going to stand for Jesus. I'm going to revere Jesus and not fear others. It's a good reason to become a Christian. That in and of itself makes you a better human being following Jesus. And secondly, speak. Now there may be a corrective to the way you talk. You don't talk at all. You need to correct the silence. Maybe you're strident, shallow, sly. We'll each have our own corrective we need to now put into practice about the way we speak. But we speak, we speak, we speak. The last comment to make before I pray for us is simply to say this morning... Uh, as we dedicate a child, a child of Steve and Kate, Cordelia, it's a wonderful moment to say, actually, I'd like to become a child of God. He makes that offer, absolutely makes that offer. Amazingly, in the family, the son, Jesus the son, says, I'll step out of this family. So there's space for you to step into this family. Jesus has done that. The space is there waiting for you to become a child of God. Jesus has vacated the space. So it's there for you. But you could do that this morning, if it was right. And one, the, the step is I'm just going to pray slowly, and you just echo that prayer in your own mind. We can all the prayer I'll pray we can all make, but especially for those who want to accept that space Jesus has made in God's family, perfectly shaped for you. Let me pray. Father God, we acknowledge that we have turned away and run away from you. We acknowledge, like any good and right father, it is correct that you punish that. And yet we recognise that Jesus, the one perfect son, 
has stepped out of the family and taken all of that rightful punishment. So there is an available space for us to step in. I acknowledge all of that describes me. Wayward, but now welcomed home because of Jesus. I accept the offer of your fatherhood and I choose to enter your family and seek to live as your son or your daughter. We pray you'd help us to stand for Jesus and to speak for Jesus and to do good and to do what is right even when it might lead to suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing another.